Alright folks, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Bagels will be coming soon. Um, Erica's got a sheet. I'm just going to pass around the sheet. It's the Kabbalah and Coffee sign-up sheet if you want to sponsor um, a class. It's $20 for the bagels, coffee, and Rabbi Ari's service. <laughs> no, it's for the food. It's not for me. <laughs> not for me. Oh, that's me. Okay. <laughs> If you'd like to take a Sunday, we always appreciate it. All right, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Kabbalah Coffee, this is the first session of 2014, which means... I'm not, that's exactly what it means. It means what it is. Now, let's, uh, let's get into the topic at hand. The topic is pushing the limits of the mind. Those of you that got the email know that that was the topic. And what we're talking about today... Good morning. What we're talking about today is the, the human mind and the limitations of, of the mind. So when you look at Torah, when you look at Torah, you find something interesting. Oh, thank you. Bagels are here. Um, when you look at the Torah, you find something interesting. You find that there are a few instances where Moshe, Moses, is chastised a bit by God for asking too many questions. Typically, we know that Moses is in good graces with God. He's one of the uh, the big heroes. right? It's Torah to Moshe, the Torah of Moses. Moses was the, in a sense, delivered the Torah to us, etc. And yet, there are a few instances where God sort of takes Moses to task for asking too many questions. One example, or the first, the first example, is aside from the whole dialogue at the burning bush, where God is trying to convince him to be the leader, and he kind of says no, and they go back and forth for seven days. Aside from that, at the end of the Torah portion of Shemot, the opening portion of the book of Exodus, the Torah tells us how, good morning, how Moses and Aaron finally approach Pharaoh. This is a few hundred years into the Egyptian exile. And they say to Pharaoh, so says God, let my people go. So that they may serve me. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. And what happens is that Pharaoh, instead of listening to them, instead of uh, kind of giving into their requests, he says, no. On the contrary, he says, not only am I not going to let you go, what am I going to do? I'm going to make it worse. I'm going to make it worse for you. I'm going to, instead of Egypt, instead of the government providing the bricks and the raw materials for you to build your house, to build, to build, the, uh, to build the cities, Pisos and Ramses, as the Torah says, Ramses certainly is related to the word Ramses. Pitom and Ramses, so it says in the Torah. Instead of the Jews getting the materials to build these cities, they're going to have to now gather the raw materials themselves and, and, and take care of it from scratch. Why? Pharaoh says, the fact that you're asking to be free means that you have extra time in your hands. The fact that you, that you dream of freedom means that you're not busy enough. If you were really busy, if you are really dedicated to your task, you wouldn't have other thoughts of, 
oh, I want a day off, I want a year off, I want to, you know, whatever, etc. So what does Pharaoh do? He's, he makes it more difficult. At the end of the Torah portion of Shemot, Moses turns to Hashem, turns, turns to God, and he says, why'd you send me? From the moment that you sent me, it's, it hasn't gotten better, it's only gotten worse. So what was the point? You sent me as a messenger, and all I've done is made it harder for, for my brothers and sisters, for the Jewish people. So what was the point? And Hashem says, hold on, now you're, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? Just, he didn't say in those... Yeah, it's, it's lost in translation a little bit. Right? He says, you ain't seen nothing yet, just hold on a little bit. But our sages tell us about the real dialogue that went down. And it's alluded to in some of the verses at the beginning of the second Torah portion of the book of Exodus, the Torah portion of Aram. And what Hashem says to, Mo- to Moses, what God says to Moses is basically, why are you asking so many questions? Why don't you have faith? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never question. When I told them about a promise, when I told them about something, they never questioned. They never said, why this, why that, it doesn't look like it's happening. They always went and followed and listened. They didn't ask any questions. You, suddenly with you, Moses, Moshe, suddenly, so many questions. I don't see it, it doesn't seem to be working out, why did you send me this? Too many questions. He says, you have to believe a little bit, have some faith. Have some faith, hold on for the ride, it'll only get better. That's basically the message. And so the mystics try to get into the psyche of Moses. Why is it that he asks so many questions? And one of the explanations that's given in the mystical teachings is that the reason why Moses is different or why he behaved differently than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the patriarchs is because Moses embodies Seichel. You know what Seichel is? What is Seichel? Seichel is intellect. Seichel. You you can talk about somebody, either they have Seichel, they don't have any Seichel, right? Seichel means... A cup. You know what a cup is? Not this. Cup. Cup is a cup. Our tagline, we I haven't spoken in many years, but our original tagline for Kabbalah and Coffee was, or is still, you get coffee in your cup and Kabbalah in your cup. A cup. A cup is a head. A cup. A cup. Yeah, cup. It's different different accents of the Yiddish. Cup, cup. It's the same, same word. Kepi, yeah, head. So you have a famous Yiddish expression, a cup, kemenit arufstellen, which means you can't put a cup on someone's shoulders. Like either they have, right? You can't. It's like if you're a teacher, you can try to impart information, but one thing you can't do is actually create a head. That you can't do. Either it's there or it's not there. Seichel, right? The cup would be the physical head, whatever. But the seichel is the intelligence, the intellect, etc. Seichel. Say the says the mystics, say, or say the mystics. What do the mystics say about Moses? He was seichel de kedusha. He was holy, or or yeah, holy, holy spiritual intellect, as opposed to the patriarchs that embodied emotion. 
says that Abraham was the epitome of kindness, chesed. We've talked about the sphero, the powers of the soul, many, the powers of the soul many times. Abraham embodies chesed, which is loving kindness. Abraham extended himself to give. He was very hospitable. He always gave. He had an open heart. Isaac Yitzchak embodied the attribute of gvura, which is more limitation, distance. Jacob Yaakov embodied the attribute of teferet, harmony, compassion. But they represented the emotions. Moses represented the idea of seichel, of intellect or intelligence. The heart can be broken. The heart can feel elation. The heart can feel love. The heart can feel sadness. Etc. The heart can feel many things. But one thing the heart doesn't do is the heart doesn't really ask questions. It feels. But the heart doesn't, doesn't itself ask what asks questions? The mind. The heart can feel pain, can feel joy, it can feel, and it can tolerate. It can also be pushed to its breaking point, but it can, it, it can hold a lot. The heart is very big. The heart can hold a lot of feeling. It doesn't always feel good, but it can hold a lot. As opposed to the mind. The mind, by its very nature, it's questioning. It's analytical. It's trying to figure things out. Trying to put things in a box. Trying to put things in an order. Putting, putting things in a seder. Putting things in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a logical, intellectual, intelligible format. When you, when you approach something with the mind, so you say, wait a second, it doesn't make sense that, this, that these numbers are, are scrambled. We've got to put them in the order that they're in. 1 through 10. We've got, to, we've got to rearrange it. That's what the mind says. The heart says, it's beautiful. Maybe that diversity of numbers, maybe that blend, that blur of numbers, maybe it's a beautiful thing. The mind says, wait! doesn't make sense. We've got to figure it out. We've got to rearrange it. We've got to make it work logically. The mind says, where's the logic? And the heart says, you really need logic? talked about this many times. Right, you have a teenage daughter, and she's in love. Huh? You had a teenage daughter. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, no. So you have a teenage daughter, and she comes home one day, and she says, I'm in love. I'm in love with... And so tell me about the guy. Turns out this guy is somebody who you don't think is, uh, is worthy of your daughter. Right? And so, what do you say? You say, wait a second, it doesn't make sense. Let me give you all the reasons in the world why it doesn't make sense. But what, what will she say? But I love him. In other words, you have the logical arguments, but the heart doesn't speak logic. It speaks a different language. It's like computer programming, which I know nothing of. But I know enough to know that there are different languages that don't always speak to each other. You have different coding languages, different... Whatever, whatever it is. Or a very simple example. Different operating systems. Your iOS, your iPhone, doesn't always speak to your Android. It doesn't... Listen, they, they may not be on speaking terms. They're fighting over money. It's, it's, it's. The point is, the heart has its own language. Its language is emotion. Feeling. The heart feels... The heart, 
would it be too much of a truism to say that the heart leads with its heart first? Or wears, or wears its heart on its sleeve? But that's what it does. That's what the heart is. The heart is feeling. I love. I feel. I, 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 I don't love. I, the opposite, etc. The heart is feeling. The mind is intellectual. So when, you, when, the, when Kabbalah speaks about temperature, temperature, it assigns different temperatures to, to, to the heart and the mind. The heart, it assigns... What do you think the temperature of the heart is? Hot. Fire. What about the mind? mind is cool. The mind is very cool. The mind is cold. It says in Kabbalah that the mind is cool and moist. The brain... I, I'm sure it's hot. Biologically. But the, but the intellect itself is cool. It says that the heart is like fire. Which is not a wet substance. It's like a dry substance. But it's fire. The heart is passion. The mind is cool. So the patriarchs, the Avot, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they encounter, when God said, here's a promise, Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants... Take a look at the stars. Take a look at the sand. Can you count it? That's how many descendants you're going to have. At a time when Abraham was childless. So if Abraham was an intellectual, what would he have what what would his what would ha, what would have been his response? Really? Say What are you talking about? I don't see it. Show me the kids. I don't see any kids. What do you mean? So many kids, I won't be able to count them. Let's start with one. God, how can you give me this promise if I don't have any kids? He would have asked, perhaps. But he didn't. He didn't ask any questions. By the way, the only time he asked the question, Abraham, is when? Is when God told him that Sodom and Amora and the cities, the cities of Sodom, etc., five cities were going to be destroyed. Then Abraham says... Will the judge of the entire world not act righteously? Then Abraham steps up. When it came to someone else's pain and suffering, then he steps up. But otherwise, for his own promise, for the promise that God gave to him, God says, you're going to have the land of Israel, you're going to have many children, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, great, well, uh, lots, of, lots of blessings. They don't materialize. God says, first time we're introduced to Abraham, other than the fact that he was born, amongst a, a, law, a huge section of Torah where it talks about people being born, lineage. Other than that, the, the, the first introduction we have to Abraham as something unique, as someone who's special, is the beginning of the Torah portion of Lech Lecha, the third Torah portion of the Torah. Bereshit is the beginning, Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, etc. Noah, the story of the flood. The next Torah portion is Lech Lecha. We begin reading about Abraham. How does the Torah portion begin? We know nothing of Abraham, just the fact that he's alive. God says to Abraham, Leave your land, leave your birthplace, leave your father's house, and go. Go where? Go to the land that I'm going to show you. In other words, you're not going to have a destination. See, today, you go anywhere... Right, what do you do? You pull out your phone, if you have one of these. Right? You say something like this. Okay, Google. Navigate to 811 Greenwood Avenue. 
navigating to 811 Greenwood Avenue, Nee, Atlanta, Georgia, 30306. Are you done yet? Okay. So here's. So that's the, so you go. You take a trip. You put in your destination, and you go. That's how we roll. God says to Abraham, "Lech lecha, just leave. Where are you going? Where am I going? I'm not telling you. Just move. I'll show you. I'll let you know when you get there. That takes faith. He doesn't ask, "Where am I going?" Doesn't ask the question. When he gets to the land, he, gets, he goes to the land that would later become the land of Israel. When he gets there, what happens? What does the Torah tell us? Pretty much right away when he gets there. A famine breaks out. So here's the land, and God promises, go to this land, and I will make you famous, I'll make you great, you'll have lots of kids, you'll have, it'll be fantastic. Spiritually, physically, you'll have everything you need. He gets there, and there's a famine. There's no food. You would imagine, he would ask God, can you explain this? Can you tell me you sent me here? What would you like me to do now? Or I don't understand. Why did you send me here if there's no food? How can I do your mission here if, there's no, if, if I don't have any resources? doesn't ask the question. Because he embodied the emotional approach. Which is an approach of being able to handle something that doesn't make sense because the emotions aren't logical. So when, when something happens that's not so logical, it might hurt, you might feel it, but you don't need an explanation. The heart doesn't need an explanation. It needs to be able to feel it, but it doesn't necessarily ask the logical questions. Moses asks the logical questions. Moses says, because he's seichel, because he's about wisdom, about understanding, so Moses asked the question when things aren't going well for the Jewish people after God had sent him to, to deliver the news to Pharaoh he says, why'd you send me? Why are you why are you making it difficult for us? Why is it worse than, 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 when, than when we started than when I started? He asked the question. So God says to Moses I miss the old days. The patriarchs didn't ask any questions. It was so easy. I told them something. It didn't make sense. They still did it. And eventually either it made sense or it still didn't make sense. But, they, but there was no... I didn't have to answer. Kids these days. Kids these days. <laughs> so many questions. Kids and their questions. Next thing you're going to ask, why is the sky blue? God says, I don't know. It looked nice. No. So, you know, this is... <coughs> the other instance that we have is by the, the red heifer where God tells Moses about the concept of ritual purity and impurity. And typically, ritual impurity is associated with a loss of life. Some sort of loss of life. We've spoken about this concept before. So, God is telling Moses about the different forms of ritual impurity. And every time he tells him about an impurity, he also tells him about the purification process. Except for when it came to coming in contact with a human with human death. Then God does not tell him the purification. Moses asked the question, so how do you purify how do you get purified if you, purified if you come in contact with with a, with a with a dead body, with a human being? And God is silent. God doesn't answer. It says that Moses' face turned green. He turned turned colors, like he got he got ill without having that answer. 
Till eventually God gave him an answer and God told him that what is the purification? You take a red heifer, perfectly red cow, and you do, there's a process with the ashes of the cow and you mix it with water, etc. The symbolism there is that from the ashes, from the pain, from the darkness, from the blackness, from the loss, the idea is to rejoin it, to move from the pain to a place of fresh spring water, which is associated with life, which doesn't really give an answer about how you get purified from death, but it just gives the response, what needs to be done. What needs to be done is to not get stuck in the state of mourning, in the state of sadness, but rather to somehow pick up and be able to continue, move from the ashes to the fresh, life-giving waters. But we see again that Moses asked the question. He asked questions, and when he doesn't get the answer, he's... So, and it's not... Understand that, you know, I, like, I, I kind of made a joke about it before, like, you know, kids these days. It's not better or worse, it's just different. It's a different approach. That's why Moses was the one who delivered the Torah. The Torah, at the end of the day, is a book of divine wisdom. So Moses, who is all about seichel, who is all about wisdom, is the one who, in a sense, was the, was the one who facilitated, at least on some level, uh, delivering the Torah to us. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with understanding a little bit about the mind, hopefully. That the mind has a tremendous ability, and the ability is to organize ideas, and to understand ideas, and connect ideas, and to, you know, there's different ways of thinking. You can think laterally, you can think in depth, you can, there's creative thought. The bottom line is, thought, ideas, intellect is, is how we understand things. But there's, a, but there's a major, but there are major limitations on what we can understand. In a few places, our sages, the Midrash and the Talmud, our sages tell us stories about angels who question God when terrible tragedies happen. So, angels... One example was when the with the Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs that were killed by the Romans. We read about it on Yom Kippur and on Tishabav. So, the story, I forget who it was, or Shmuel maybe, one of the great... So the Roman emperor slaughtered him, just beheaded him, and, and the head rolled in the... So the angels basically said to God, how is it right that the mouth of a scholar, that the tongue of the scholar, that, that, that studied Torah all of his life, should now be literally licking the dust. God said, along the lines of, this is my will, and no more questions. If you ask any more questions, I'm going to turn the world into nothingness. I'm going to revert it into nothingness. I'm going to destroy the world. So at first glance, it seems like a very... How would you characterize that answer? Severe. Huh? Severe. Maybe even worse than severe. It's like, I don't have an answer for you. But don't ask me any questions. Otherwise, I'm going to get violent. I mean, it sounds like a very... Vitriolic. Well, what, what's the... Vitriolic. Vitriolic, yeah. Very angry. 
It's explained in the commentaries that what God was really saying is that when you look at something, you look at an event that happens, and you ask the question, why? Why did it happen? What you're doing is you're isolating an event, and you're asking, why? And the answer is, many different ways you can answer the question, but one way of understanding God's answer is basically that God is saying, if you really want to know the answer, you have to know the story from the beginning. In other words, it's kind of like what God says to Job. Right? What does God say to Job? Were you around at the, from the beginning of time? Were you around when everything was... Start? Job is asking a question, why is he suffering? Job is, is, doesn't understand. And God says, how can you expect to understand? How can you expect to understand a small piece of the puzzle when you don't know the whole, the whole picture? So some of the commentaries explain that what God was really saying to the angels is that if you really want to understand what's going on here, we have to undo everything, go back to nothingness, go back to the beginning, and you'll have to be along for the ride the whole way through and then see how this fits into the picture. Otherwise, to just ask, why is this happening? It's not a fair question. So there are limitations when we ask questions. And it's not only when we ask questions about tragedies. And we, we need to ask questions about tragedies, about things, about pain, about suffering, etc. The response is to ask questions and to demand of God that God fix the problem. The point, the general point, though, is to understand the limitations of knowledge, the limitations of the mind. And there's a few different ways to understand it. Again, we're trying to understand the limitations of the mind. A few ways that we can understand it. Number one, as I just mentioned, we don't see the whole picture. Whether it's talking about good things, bad things, or otherwise, it doesn't matter what specific thing we're talking about. The overall point is that the mind has a severe limitation in that it cannot understand things that it doesn't see. And since the mind can't see beyond itself. In other words, your mind is stuck in your perception, in your space, in your limited atmosphere, surroundings, etc., in your, in your limited corner of the world. Not only ability, but your, it's, your mind exists only in its corner of the world. So you can't understand something beyond that. Why? Because you just can't relate to it. You don't see it. You don't see it, you can't understand so there's one limitation in, in that it can't, that mind can't understand things that are outside of its its perception, outside of its what it comes in contact with. There's another limitation of the mind, in that the mind, no matter how powerful the mind is, the greatest mind, the greatest mind in history, still can only understand things that are understandable. And something that's not understandable cannot be understood. As we've said many times, even a few weeks ago, the mind is a tool that's, and even, even earlier today, the mind is a tool that speaks, that, that, that uses a certain language. And that language can only interpret certain things that speak the same language. 
The mind can't interpret, can't understand something that doesn't speak the same language. Just can't. So what does this mean? Either the mind can't understand any emotion, which is true, but in addition to that, even when we talk about in the realm of intellect, when we talk about divine intellect, divine wisdom, and we talk about a wisdom that is much greater than human wisdom. You talk about an intelligence, a higher intelligence, a divine intelligence, that is called intelligence only very loosely, but doesn't use the same logical formulas that we use, the mind can't understand that. In other words, the mind can only understand things that are in the realm of human intellect, human intelligence. Things, formulas that work here in this world, in this reality. The mind can't understand formulas that exist on a higher spiritual plane. On a a plane where, or in a realm where, the formulas that are logical there make no sense here. The mind can't wrap itself around what we would call illogical formulas that are logical somewhere else. Does it make sense? So, Shouldn't make sense. It doesn't. Well, in some way, what I'm thinking about is that it's actually the mind could, but what it's missing are the, it's almost like a contextual reference. So when we talk about language, an understanding of language is based on the references that the words are making. It's referring to something. So if it's within a context that we don't experience... Right. But that's the first thing that I was saying. The first thing that I was saying is that the limitation is the fact that you don't have the right experience. That you live in a certain context, so you can't, you can't understand, relate to a different type of language, whatever it is in so- somewhere else. That's the first limitation. The second limitation really exists, to be true to the text itself, it exists... The, the, it, the way it explains it here is the difference between intelligence that is finite and intelligence that is infinite. Infinite intelligence doesn't mean it speaks a little bit of a different language. doesn't mean that it's a little bit of a different context. doesn't mean that it's a little bit greater. It's like the difference between... See, one, you know, the number one and the number a million... Wow, it's, it's so different. One can't relate to a million, right? You mean speak on human terms. You have a billionaire, let's talk about a billion. A billionaire can relate to somebody, perhaps, that has one dollar in there to their name. Can't relate to that person, perhaps, because it's such a big gap. What about one to infinite? What about a million to infinite? And then we have to ask the question, which is closer to infinite, one or a million? And what's the answer? They're equally insignificant. See, the word infinite, when we use the word infinite, the mind, which is limited, which is finite, usually conjures up a big number, a really, really big. What's infinite? Really super big, bigger than big. Because that's the finite mind trying to figure out how to, how to understand infinite. That's applying logical formulas to something that is infinite. So what is something truly infinite? 
that which cannot at all be quantified by the tools of limitation. Not just because it can't relate to the infinite, because it's totally in a different reality. Not just in a different reality like, like geographically or conceptually in a different reality. It's the difference between finite and infinite. There's no other way to say it. Other than... It's an un... Basically, it's a gap that's unbridgeable between the finite and the infinite. It's not like if I had a few more finite tools, I could figure it out. It's infinite. You can't figure it out. It says divine wisdom, God's wisdom, is infinite. Like everything that's divine, God's wisdom is not limited. God also compresses His wisdom to deliver a, uh, a document, the Torah, that we can understand, more or less. But God's wisdom, as it exists within Himself... As Maimonides writes, Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, writes, "Who v'chachmato echad? God and His wisdom are one." Which means that just as God is infinite, His wisdom is infinite. His intelligence is infinite. What He understands, the way He understands, it's on a, it's, it's on a different level. Not a different level, like a greater level, like what we would understand different, but on an infinite. Infinite. So what's infinite? Basically, just supplant, just switch out infinite with unreachable. It's not that if we had, see that's the thing. It's not like if we had a few more tools at our disposal, we would be able to reach it. That's the first level of, I don't get it yet, but if I had a few more frames of reference, you know, I could, I could get it. This is not <coughs> something that you're lacking. This is something that's of a completely different sort. So, just a question. What is the, the piece of our mind that can imagine infinite? infinite? The, the, the piece of our minds that knows, it's still our mind, that knows that there's something beyond our mind. There's, is that when you were talking about God compressing? Could be. Like, like it, so, it depends. Presumably that happened at one point, right? The, somewhere in the evolution of our mind, we well, gained I, the ability to recognize that there was something beyond our mind. The way it's explained in Kabbalah is that, and these are concepts that we've talked about many times before, is that we have two souls. The animal soul, which is the human soul, which is the biological soul, which is the natural soul, which is the vitalizing soul, which is what we would call maybe the intellectual soul. And then we also have, although it's a little bit different, we also have the godly soul. The godly soul is a piece of God. So that's God compressing Himself into us. So it's not like a human... And it says the godly soul has the powers of Chachma, Bina, and Da'at, have the powers of intelligence. In other words... The God, but on a divine level. So there is a part. The question is when we try to imagine, when we're sitting here now, trying to imagine God, trying to imagine infinite, are we accessing the, the, the godly soul? I don't know. Because there's also a part of our imagination, of our human imagination, that can try to imagine something beyond anything that we know. And try to imagine something truly infinite. But it kind of gets stuck in a finite loop. I think. I think kind of get stuck. See, I, I think that the godly soul... How do you know when you're thinking from the godly soul? I think it's less thinking and more knowing. 
I think it's a little bit hard if you're trying to rationalize. I think your question was, what was your question? It's like, when, where does that part of the mind that you can imagine something, where does that come from? Either it's coming from the godly soul, right? So either it's coming from the godly soul and it's a pure experience, or it's coming from the mind and it's not a pure experience. So we're just telling, we're convincing ourselves that we're thinking of something, that we're imagining something infinite. See, the finite mind can imagine, like what Sandy said before, the finite mind can well understand that there are things, finite things, that are greater than itself. If it's honest, if it's honest, if it's not honest, the finite mind will say, well, I'm the the greatest. If it's honest, it will say, there are finite things that are greater than myself, or that, that are greater than, there are things that I don't know. But to truly move to imagining the infinite, that, that's, that's, another, that's another idea. And that's really one of the major Jewish ideas, is that there is infinite wisdom, there is divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is in the Torah, which creates a little bit of a duality when you study Torah. Because when you study Torah, what are you trying to do? First and foremost. Okay, okay but that's true. You're right. But after that, after that, what are you trying, when you're actually studying Torah, what are you trying to do? Ah, you guys are getting too, too deep on me. Literally, what are you trying to do when you're studying Torah? You're trying to understand something, right? You're reading something and trying to understand it. Sorry for asking the obvious question with the obvious answer. Right? You're studying Torah, the point is to understand it. So here's the duality. As much as you understand it, at the same time, we're, call, we're also called upon to recognize that there's a part of the Torah, of this mitzvah, of this story, of this, what, this teaching, that I cannot understand. In other words, as much as this is wisdom that I can relate to, that I can understand, this is truly and purely, essentially, God's wisdom that I will never be able to understand. Make sense? It's a bad question, this. I think... I think we're, one of the places where it gets a little tripped up is, is actually the reference to intelligence. Because it's not really something, intelligence isn't something we have or don't have. It's actually more of a verb than a noun. Okay. So it is. So intel, is intellect better? Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I defer all, all brain questions. I'm deferring. So, uh, but I think in that, that in, in some ways it's, it's hard to imagine because we our thinking is done within certain parameters and infinity is asking you to go beyond those parameters. So in a way, I mean, when I would try to imagine infinity, I just kind of look at the sky because I don't see a beginning and an end. And I see a horizon, but I know that's kind of artificial. But the sky is also limited. So that's the point. Anything that we can imagine. In other words, like you try to imagine something that's really, really, really big. A circle, no beginning and no end. It's also finite. It's also finite. Circles are finite. It's part of part of the creator reality. Try to really imagine something infinite. It's it's more than that. When you get there, when you're sort of on the border of perceiving that there's something so big, you tend to shut down and get a little get a little frightened. You Step back from that ledge. That. Yeah. Look, I think that the mind is not the greatest tool. And when we, when we sense that we're getting close to that type of thing, it's usually not a mind experience. 
<laughs> might be a mind-altering experience. No, it's not usually a mind, right? It's not usually like, oh, I, I really thought about this and I've come to the conclusion it's not really the logical formula. The logic says, finite, 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 bigger, 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 but it hits a wall. Well, we're asked when we, so again, when we study Torah, you had a question, right? You had a question. Oh, so just to just around that. So when we study Torah, we're asked to do two things. Study the Torah, understand that, yes, with a point to understand how to live better lives and get closer to God, 100%. But study, understand what, what we're studying, number one. Number two, also recognize, I don't know if that's a good word, accept, whatever, that the wisdom that you're studying is really infinite wisdom that you can't understand. And the little bit that you do understand is only because, as we mentioned before, God compresses some of His infinite wisdom and allows, you to, allows us to understand a little bit of it. But in truth, in essence, at its core, it's really infinite wisdom that not only are you not able to understand, it's, un, it's not understandable to anything finite. One second. Augustine. Um, so Abraham's faith and, and Moses, that was blind faith. He was more the questioner, yeah. By the way, they were both righteous and both were not knocking anybody and they both had tremendous faith. The question is, how do you approach it? Do you approach it with the mind first or the heart first? That's really... Cool. And so then you brought up Job. So yes. A fierce response. Yes. Well, he asked lots of questions. Was it something behind the question that created that response? Because when I was listening, well, what I listened was that Moses wasn't trying to be God or, or judge him. Just right. Just trying to understand. But Job was, it was kind of a... Maybe, maybe God's response was after, you know, maybe Moses was the first one to ask such questions. And once you have the answer already in Torah, so Job should have, should have known better to ask it again. <laughs> I've already said, wait and see. You want me to undo this whole thing? No, were you around from the beginning? It's a good question. Maybe the question came from a different place. I would probably venture to say the question came from a little bit of a different place. You know that Job was some, according to, there's lots of debate about Job. Was he actually real? Is it just a metaphor? But most say that Job was real. In fact, he was a contemporary or lived in the same era as Moses. It says Job was one of the three advisors of Pharaoh. It was... It was Pharaoh had the Jewish problem. There's too many Jews in, in, in Egypt. So he gathered his council of wise men, three of them. There was Job, there was Balaam, the prophet of the donkey, you know, the story of the talking donkey. Yeah, there's the Midrash, yeah. And, and um, Job, Eov, Balaam, and Yisro, Jethro, Moses, eventually who become Moses' father-in-law. And so he asked them for their advice. So Balaam said, throw the boys into the Nile River, kill them. Infanticide. Kill them. Kill, kill the kids. That's how you destroy the nation. Jethro, Yisro said, No way. What you, you can't do something so barbaric. And Job kept, kept silent. 
So that's why Jethro had to run away, because Pharaoh didn't like his response. He took Balaam's response, and Job, he was silent. Complicit in the crime. Some say that that's what, uh, what led to some of this stuff, yeah. This may be a tangent, and if so, tell me, but when you were talking about the purpose of studying Torah is on the one hand to understand, but on the other hand to understand that there's stuff beyond our understanding. Correct. Is it the... We're not to understand that, but to, 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 uh, to accept, right. Appreciate it. Is, is it the belief that when you think about all of the commentaries, yes. that over time, there's that though, though man will never fully understand that it's that man is becoming is coming closer to understand that, that in other words it gains knowledge of God's will through what study? I, Does the study kind of get you there but never fully get there or there's a process, there's really a dual process of the more that we study, the more using Kabbalistic terminology, the more the vessels expand. Right. In other words the vessels are like how we can receive. So the more we study, yes, we are progressing, the vessels are expanding, in other words, we are able to take in more light, if you will. At the same time, it says that God is also revealing more. Now, it doesn't necessarily look like that all the time, but it's, you know, certainly with the advent of, of the mystical teachings of Judaism, Kabbalah, etc., we see that kind of revelation happening. So there is more. more no, it's a, what I'm saying is it's a combination of both, actually. So it says in Kabbalah. But, but that, there is progress. There is there progress. Is into, there, is, there is progress in the finite it's, intellect. Ability. It's not as bad as it looks, right. is what I would say. <laughs> no, there is progress. There is progress. But still, that's on a finite level. Right. To really bridge that gap is for God to compress or to move the infinite wisdom into a finite package. And that's, and that's a process. And, and by the way, that's a process. If you know, I mean, if... if if you follow the, the evolution, if you will, of Kabbalah, I mean, the, 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 the first teachings of Kabbalah, are the early teachings of Kabbalah, are extremely, extremely abstract. Very, very difficult to understand. And then, you know, it gets through the generations. It gets, Sefer Yitzhira is very difficult. Zohar, also difficult. But then you have the Arizal, and he's speaking in more of a, an understandable language. Sugazan, the Bashem Tov, and then this, the text that we learned, Sugazan. So you have, so the Kabbalah gets more and more understandable, if you will, as things progress. Yeah. That's more, okay, that's, that's a topic unto itself. That's a topic unto itself. The, that's, we, have to, we have to say that for a topic unto itself. The one thing I'll say is that the one thing that we can't do or can't really try to do is understand it. That's why God's response to Moses saying, when Moses says, how do you purify from death after coming in contact with death? It's not literally a, a technical question. God, his question is, what's the response after tragedy? And God doesn't answer. Because the answer sometimes is silence. There's no answer. What do, you, what do you do about it, though? You take the black ashes and you mix it with water from a living source. That's, that's the response. That's not the answer. There's a difference. There's no answer. God is silent. And in that response, or lack of, of an answer, 
it's the greatest answer that we can that's the greatest lesson that we can be taught there's no answer to tragedy the response is different so the greatest answer is for, for us to accept that there's no answer i don't have to accept but it's to it's to be we can be bothered by the fact that there's no answer also but you can be bothered and still accept it i don't think you said that I don't. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know, there's there's different responses when it comes to this. Is, again, I don't want to get too too deep into this into this topic. I just mentioned it for understand the limitations of the mind. You know, when it's our tragedy, there's one. Response. When it's someone else's tragedy, there's another response. It's, but God kind of sets the tone with the silence. I think maybe this thing. First of all, I'm thinking that God gave us the gift of grief in the midst of tragedies, even with uh, some of the things we see on TV and what's happening around the world. And I feel a certain grief for those people. So. But the response, all right, what am I going to do? Right. No, and the truth is that the Jewish way of mourning is, that, you know, the Shiva, the Shloshim, it's, diff- it's periods that you might refer to as silence. You know, you don't go back to work, you, can't, you stay at home, people... It's, it's more of a still, you know, you have... To... Anyway. It's, we, we need a, we need a, a we need to dedicate a whole a class to this, and we've done it in the past, and so we could do it again. But it's uh, it's a big it's a bigger topic than we can handle right now. If you don't understand it, how do you prevent it from happening in the future? So for me, uh, I label certain tragedies because I think some tragedies are just you can't understand, but some you cannot, and I just label those. Hundred percent. Well, no, 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 I'm with you. No, so. Correct. So it doesn't mean that you can't and you shouldn't try to to, to solve it, to to heal, to to prevent it on the ground over here. But at the end of the day, when someone experiences for themselves tragedy, that's if you're witnessing someone else's tragedy. That's why I said there's a little bit of a difference. When you experience the tragedy, not you, God forbid, somebody experiences the tragedy themselves, their response is going to be different than when someone perceive someone else's. But yeah, as human beings, we have to make sure never again, etc. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And we have to also challenge God and say, No, you can't you can't make that you can't let this happen. It's not right. And ask the question. Yes, 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 yes.
So that's what the confusion is and the conflict. But we want to understand stuff. To, to, but then that is trying to bring God to our level. And, and the point is there's something greater than that. It's like trying to understand the motivation for some great artist, for some beautiful piece of work that he did. And all he wanted to do was be able to buy another bottle of brandy. You know, I mean, but... Well, hopefully God is not looking for brand, more brand. <laughs> I'm with you. But I, what I hear, put it, put it in a box. Exactly. Right, and that's really what God was telling Moses: is look, you're trying to understand it, and that's what he was telling the angels as well, in different ways. You're trying to understand something that might not be understandable trying to compress it too much or, or have it compressed, you, you're going to have to come to, to my side of things to really understand it. And that requires an undoing of all that is real to you and all that's real. You know, there, has to be, there has to be an undoing of the finite to the point where the world doesn't exist anymore. So I'll destroy the world. In other words, if you really want to see things from my end, you have to deconstruct the entire existence. And that might not be so comfortable. <laughs> Right, you have to deconstruct. You ready for that? Who's ready for that? Who can tell you? Because you, you can't be on that side. And you said before, God doesn't want us to. And that's not why we're here. We're supposed to be in the we're, tangible. Yeah, we're not. We're not meant to be deconstructed. We're not meant to go. To, but God gave us the ability to ask those questions. hundred percent, and that's why it's very important. When we Abraham, the same Abraham that was more of the accepting when tragedy was about to happen to someone else, he stood up and said, this is not right. That's 100%. Huh? With Lot, well, he went and, went and saved his... Exactly, with Sodom. Moses, with the sin of the golden calf, did the same thing. He also questioned other things. But, yeah. It's hard to condemn. Oh, we're not condemning. No, we're not condemning. It's hard to condemn them Oh, so that's why, that's why I want to look at it less as God. See, it seems like God is condemning. I, the way this, the commentators understand it is not that God is condemning the question. God is opening up the insight for them to understand. We, don't, we shouldn't read it like God is angry, answering with, with the vitriol, with the anger. He says he's destroyed. No, but that's not what he means. He, what he means is... No, I, okay, because that's how we read it. With our, what God is really saying is... You can't understand it. You will never be able to understand it. If you want to understand it, you'll have to not be. Not be. You'll have to unbe. You'll have to come to my side, and then you're not. You you don't exist anymore. You can't be in existence. You can't be in finite existence and understand infinite. If you want to, if you want to understand the infinite, so then we gotta undo the finite. You can't see my face and live, he tells Moses. Ah, oh, another example where Moses says, show me the money. And, right? Show me your face. God says, no person can see my face and live. You can see my back, but not my face. What's the back? The back is the lower, lower level stuff. Not my face. Okay. With all of this in mind, with all of this in mind, we can now look into, oh, one more level. So, because there are three levels here. We've done two of them. There's one more that we have to mention. Very quickly, and then we're going to read it inside. 
Again, what was level one is that the mind that's limited, that has a context, that has a limited knowledge, that's in one corner of the world, etc., can't always understand something or relate to something that exists within the human realm of knowledge and intellect, etc., but this one mind can't understand all that stuff. So that's one limitation. The other limitation is, a greater limitation is the human mind, the finite mind, can't understand infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom. Because finite can't understand infinite. And that's what we've been focusing mainly on this morning. There's another level. There's another level. And that is, that when we talk about Torah and mitzvot, it's not just divine wisdom, infinite divine wisdom. It's infinite divine will. It's very important. It's not just that the Torah, or that the mitzvah, is, is divine wisdom. That's so much greater than our wisdom, not greater. It's infinite wisdom. That's not it. That's not the extent of it. It's that the Torah and the, mitzvah, and the mitzvot are divine will, will that's so much greater than wisdom. So what's the difference between will and wisdom? I'm not referring to some guy named Will. Just to clarify. Will, desire, something that I want. To understand this, again, it's something we've spoken about many times before, but just to clarify this before we read it inside, otherwise it's not going to be so understandable as we're trying to understand how we can't understand. With will, there are different types of wills or wants. I want something. Sometimes you want something because of a logical formula. So, this plus this plus this, okay, so I want it. Other times, you want something, not because of a logical formula, but just because you want it. So, I'll ask you a question. What do you like better? Or what do you want? Vanilla or chocolate? And then you'll answer, strawberry. Because that's such a Jewish answer. Right? <laughs> None of the above. Thanks for asking. Thank you very much. Alright, so vanilla or chocolate? So you'll say chocolate, or you'll say vanilla, whatever. That's what you want. I ask you why. Because I like it. I press you and I ask you why. Now what? What are you going to say? Why do you like vanilla over chocolate? Why? That's what it is. It is a flavor, and you like that flavor. But my question was why? It's a very logical question. Why? Why does that satisfy you more than chocolate? My taste buds have a more positive response. That's what, it, that's what it does. That's still what it does. That's still what it does. My taste buds have a positive response. I understand what? I understand the what very well. My question is to the why. Why do your taste buds react more positively? Why do they get their taste buds on when they come in contact with vanilla over chocolate? Why? Oh, so then you so then you revert to nature. And remember what we said about nature before. Nature means I have no idea why. When you pull out the nature card, well, that's the nature of something. With that, it's a huge red flag. Kabbalah, the Tanya, he talks about this. Dr. Rebbe says, when you say something is its nature, what that means is we have no clue. 
Well, that's the natural properties. When you mix this and this, that's what happens. Why? Well, that's its nature. Okay, that means you don't understand. Yes, that's exactly right. We have no clue why. That's so you pull out the nature card. So I've nature. Okay. So here's the deal. This is just an illustration. So let's strip away the illustration. Let's talk about the essential concept. There's certain things that you want. I want something. Why do you want it? Because I want it. So what really drives the want? What it really comes down to, as as was mentioned in in this illustration, is pleasure. You want it because it will taste. Because you know that it will taste better. Talking about food, you want the food that will taste better to you, which means that will or want is always goes hand in hand with pleasure. So Kabbalah speaks of what we would call the superpowers of the soul. There are emotional powers of the soul. There are rational powers of the soul. All of that are conscious, things that we're aware of. Then there are the superpowers of the soul. Things that drive us and we don't even think about. We can't even conceptualize. But they drive us. This is pleasure and will. These are superpowers of the soul. Subconscious powers of the soul. So, you know, you can quantify sometimes what you want. But why you want it? I don't know. That's how I like it. Why? So, I'm not going to answer the why. Because, as the author of it once said, if a taiva is kinkashinit, you can't ask a question on someone's desire. You can't ask a question. Ask a question. It's their nature, right? Referring to that, referring to the nature card. It's their nature. You can ask a question on nature. Why do I like vanilla over chocolate? Because it tastes better to me. It's exactly what we did before is really the answer. There's no answer. I didn't ask a question. What? So here's the point. Will is a co- will goes alongside with pleasure. What you want is based on what you know is good for you or to you, etc. It's not logical. You can't distill it into a logical formula. That's the purpose of the illustration. You can't say, I like vanilla because logically there's no logic in saying, that's what I like. That's a statement of fact. There's nothing logical there. Correct? It's a statement of fact. I like it. Why do you like it? Because I like it. It's not a logical formula. At At its core, every mitzvah is a desire of God. God desires that we wrapped filling. So then I ask the question, why? So there are three levels here. Either I can understand it, maybe it's a little bit outside my frame of reference, but I can move to understand it because it's finite. Or I accept the fact that it's infinite wisdom that I'll never really understand. Or I move to an even greater space and I say, you know what? It's not even divine wisdom. It's divine will. Divine will tied in with divine pleasure. In other words, God likes it. Like, I like vanilla. God likes tefillin. God likes it when I wrap tefillin. But why? Why do you like vanilla? I don't have an answer for that. Okay? God likes when you put on tefillin. And therefore, God wants you to put on tefillin. That's what God likes. But why? 
It's not even a whiz, it's not even a, an intellectual formula. It's not even infinite wisdom. It's divine will. Will that transcends wisdom. Is the distinction between wisdom and will kind of clear? I threw in pleasure there to understand that the will is coming from a certain pleasure. In other words, God likes it when we do the mitzvot. So therefore, He wants us to do the mitzvot. So then we say, but why? So one answer is, because God, God told you so. Because God wants you to. But, then, but, but why? You can't really ask a question on a desire. It's, again, it's like somebody pressing as to why you like vanilla. Eventually you're going to say, back off, I just like it. It's like, you're scaring me. I just like it. I can't give you an answer. You don't like that. Is it mind and heart? It's deeper than heart. It's beyond emotion. It's, it deal, it's the subconscious of the soul. It's the subconscious. It could drive emotion, but it's not emotional. And you know, as we talked about sort of the animal soul, and that has a lot to do, that's pleasure. So in some ways, we're almost in a way going. The animal soul has its pleasures, and the godly soul has its pleasures. But we're not talking about the animal soul. We could talk about illustrations of different pleasures, and we could. Heck, we could be here all day talking about different material pleasures. But what but the point of the illustration is really to understand that God also has things that He likes and therefore wants. And when you try to distill it, when you try to distill it into a formula, you're asking, you're not asking, you're not asking the right question. It's not just that your mind can't understand a higher wisdom or infinite wisdom. It's that it's not wisdom at its core. It's because I like it. It's because I said so, because I want it. And why do you want it? Because I like it. You can't ask the why over what something somebody likes. But isn't it circular? I mean, we, if we can't know whether God has a, a greater wisdom for wanting us to do it, how do we know the difference between Him having a better re- a reason we can't understand or Him just liking it? Either way, we don't know. Right. How can we know the difference? In other words, it could be that... Like we'll never know. Our finite mind will never Correct. know whether God has an infinitely wise reason for doing it or just takes pleasure from our doing it. Well, he has both. Well, how do we know? Because that's what we're taught. Got it. Because you say so. Be, and not because I say so, because, the, the, because, the, because the Kabbalah says so, because Judaism says so. <laughs> we just listen. <laughs> so, that, so again, but this is a very, very important point. That at its core, a mitzvah is not a logical formula. At its core, a mitzvah is something that God wants. It's a divine desire. God desires that we do the mitzvot. Now, there's also a wisdom associated with that, but at its core, God can rationalize with His infinite wisdom, His infinite desire or will, what He wants, but at its core, it is a desire and a want that is, and He doesn't say this here, but I'm, I'm adding on to this, which is associated with divine pleasure. 
God says, I want you to do this mitzvah or that mitzvah. Why? Because that's what I want. Like you want chocolate or you like vanilla? That's, you want that, you want... That's what I want. Why? Because I like it. Why? You can't ask why. Maybe the gift is to human beings because in doing these mitzvah, we're acknowledging on a conscious level a, a connection. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's exactly... That's why a mitzvah means connection. Safs of the Hebrew. It's a, 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 common, a, a connection. It gives God pleasure. But the gift is to us. Uh, that's for sure. That's for sure. The question is, why does God want this specific mitzvah and not that specific mitzvah? Why does He want me to put on black boxes on my arm and not wrap them on my leg? Why does God want me to put the scroll on the doorpost and not on the ceiling? Because that's what He wants. Because that's what He likes. But why? You can't ask Him. Right, so there's also an infinite wisdom. There's also a finite wisdom. There's three levels, sometimes. There's a finite wisdom that we might be able to figure out. Maybe we don't know yet, but maybe we can explore, get a context, get a handle, get a metaphor, get a story, and somehow get it. Then there's the divine wisdom element of it, the infinite wisdom, which is a higher wisdom. There is a wisdom, there is a knowledge, there is a, there's, there's a reason for it that's infinite that we'll never understand. Because we can't, unless we went to the other side. And then, there's an even higher dimension to every mitzvah. And that is that it's not a, lot, it's not a, it's not a piece of wisdom. It's not a piece of an intellect. And all of the commentaries... It's will. It's will that God wants. It has nothing to do with logic. So why are we doing it? Because God wants. And why wouldn't you want to do what God wants? Why wouldn't you want to... You know? Give God that pleasure? All of the commentaries are just about that first level, trying to improve our finite understanding. Yeah. Why? With an understanding, why? there's something bigger. But why? Why? Because that's our nature. No. Right? That's, that's also our nature. Right. No, but why? Because God said to us, I want you to, to understand it. Not because in that way it's better, or in that way it's, it's, it means more, or it's truer. No? No? God says, I want you, also a will, desire. God said, I want to package my will in a way that's compressed so that you can understand a little bit of it. Why? Because God wanted us to get our minds involved in a mitzvah as well. Not because inherently that's a better, something better, but because He wanted it. Okay, with all of these intros, now we can read chapter 3. Oh yeah. I guess we'll be needing these after all. <laughs> okay, this should take us through chapter... We'll be able to, to finish chapter 3 now. Alright. Uh, we are... You know... Somewhere or other. I would say here... This is where we're going to start. We're going to... I don't even know if we're chapter 3. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We're chapter 4. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Okay. Um... Okay, we're going to start chapter 4 from Fulfilling Mitzvot. I think we read it, but it's very important that we read it again from here. And our, our aim is going to finish chapter 4. We're going to try to read through the whole chapter. I'm going to interject a little bit of commentary, but, but pretty much the whole scope of it we got. 
Okay, fulfilling mitzvot. Birthday boy. Fulfilling mitzvot. This concept that even the mitzvot for which there is a reason must be fulfilled because they are the divine will pertains not only to the person who fulfills them, but this fulfillment of mitzvot should be like the service of the servant, which is only possible when he fulfills the mitzvot, not because of a reason or intellect, but because of the command of the master. Rather, it pertains also to the mitzvot themselves. What he's basically saying is that when you fulfill a mitzvah, just because God said so, that reflects the truth of the mitzvah itself. It's not only the advantage of you not getting stuck in your mind, not only giving you the advantage of letting go of your head, but it also reflects the truth of the mitzvot themselves. Mitzvot are not a logical formula. They are divine will. And that's what he says right here. Um, all mitzvot, even those for which there is a reason, are the divine will, will that transcends reason. It is just that God chose that the desire for such mitzvot to be clothed in reason as well. Right? That's what we just said. Okay, continue please. Furthermore, even the reasons for the mitzvot in their true form transcend human logic. For the true form of the reasons is as they exist within God's wisdom. What he does is he, I went one, two, three, he's going three, two, one, notice. He's saying, the mitzvot in their purity are divine will. Even as they assume a form of wisdom, they initially assume the form of divine wisdom, which is infinite wisdom. That's step two. That still transcends our ability to understand. Since God's wisdom, like God's Himself, that, that should be like God Himself. Like God himself yeah. is also infinite, especially since He and His wisdom are one. It is impossible for the finite intellect of created beings to grasp the true reason for the Now, again, it's not just that our, you know, we don't have a way, we don't have a good analogy, we don't have a good, you know, story to help us understand the mitzvot. A human being cannot understand. A human being can only understand finite wisdom. Infinite wisdom cannot be understood by a human being. So the true reason, and by when he says true, what he really means is the essential reason, the deepest reason, not the will. Will is forget. You can't, there's no reason for will. It's it's a desire. But even within reason, the true reason, the deepest reason, the essential, the infinite reason cannot be understood by a human being. And here we have a quote from the book of Tanya, top of forty-two. The reasons for the mitzvot were not revealed, and they are beyond logic and understanding. And even in the few instances where a seemingly intelligible reason has been revealed and explained to us, this reason alone, which is understandable to us, is not the ultimate and full reason. So what does he say over there? He says a few different things. Number one, the, re- the, general, the, general, the baseline for the mitzvot is that, that the reasons are beyond the reasons for the mitzvot are not revealed, they're beyond logic and understanding. In other words, they're, they're, you can't, they're, they, there are reasons, but you can't understand them. And even where you think you do understand it, oh, I understand this mitzvah, this mitzvah makes sense. That's only a small piece of the pie. That's only, he says, it's not the ultimate and full reason, it's just a small part of the reason. that make any sense? Even human logic clearly understands that finite intellect is incapable of grasping God's infinite wisdom. And here he goes to the fact that even human logic, can we really understand this? We can appreciate it. We can appreciate that finite and infinite are not the same. So the finite logic, the finite intellect of the human being cannot grasp God's infinite wisdom. We can kind of understand that, appreciate that. 
contrary, the fact that in a few instances some intelligible reason was revealed and explained to us is an astounding phenomenon. In other words, what the Pella, the wonder is, the wonder is not that we don't understand everything. The wonder is that we can understand anything. In other words, we shouldn't be like, oh, I can't understand them. I don't understand. Why can't I understand them? It's what I should be able to understand it. That's not the question. The question is, how can I understand anything? If it's really divine wisdom, which is infinite wisdom, how can I understand the thing? How can any of this make sense? That's a gift from above. God did the impossible. God, we can't bridge the infinite and the finite. We can't, go, we can't go there. God, in His infinite ability, can take the infinite and compress it to make it finite, or some of it finite. That's God, and that's the Pella, that's the wonder. That's a phenomenon. Continue. It is no less than the divine kindness that enables even human intellect to have some grasp of the mitzvah's reason. So that really is the miracle. What's the miracle? The miracle is not that we can't understand. The miracle is that we understand anything at all about Torah and mitzvot. That's the fact that we can open up the Torah, read it, and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes no, that makes no sense. That's truly a miracle. That's a miracle of God taking something infinite and making it intelligible, understandable, somehow relatable to a finite human being. That's the miracle. When it comes to a mitzvah, it's the same thing. The fact that you understand even a small detail, I understand the significance of Shabbos candles, significance of kosher, the fact that you have even a sliver of that, of that appreciation or understanding, that itself is the miracle. The fact that you don't understand the whole, the totality of it or the truth of it, that's not, that doesn't make, that, that's not something that's like, I can't understand. That makes sense. Makes sense that you shouldn't understand divine wisdom. How can you understand the infinite wisdom? Continue. Yet even after an intelligible reason has been revealed and explained to us through God's kindness, it is known that this reason addresses only the general mitzvah, not its particulars. You want to tell me that kosher signifies the idea of creating distinctions in our lives between, you know, and split hooves and chewing cud has this reason and that significance. It's only a small piece of the puzzle. Why? Why? You can ask the question why. So, anyway, without, we can go through different examples of mitzvah, but the bottom line is, even the reason that we understand, he says, how do you know, what, what should trigger the mind into recognizing that this is not the full reason? It's the fact that there's so many details about the mitzvah that we don't understand. So at what point should we stop? No, we don't stop. Okay. Here, we don't stop. We have to learn and we have to keep on learning. At the same time, to accept the fact that as much as I learn, as much as I know, there still will be much more that I'll never know, that I can't know, but that should never dissuade us from studying. Okay. We need to study. Why? Not, because, not only because our minds are curious, but because God wants us to learn. Oh, desire, that also doesn't make sense. Because why does God care? Because He wants it. He gives Him pleasure to, 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 that, we, that our minds should be actively engaged in the process. So He wants it, so we do it. So we study. And we get it and it feels good, whatever we get. Bottom line is, at the end of the day, there's a lot more that we will never understand, that we can't understand, than what we do understand. But that doesn't stop us from learning. We've got to keep on learning. We're people of the book, after all. We've got to live up to our name. Otherwise, they're going to pull the slogan from us. We don't want to do that. All right, continue. It follows from all the above that the, test, that the testimonial and judicial mitzvot are also like the statutes as far as we are concerned, since even the reasons for the mitzvot which derive from God's wisdom transcend the logic of free and the beings. Wait, wait, did everyone get that? 
Sort of? Sort of, kind of? Okay. So there are three types of mitzvot. Mishpatim, Eidos, and Chukim. So the testimonial mitzvot are those that bear test, like Passover. It's we observe Passover to remind us of the Exodus. Okay, that makes sense. Columbus Day, Memorial Day, we also have, America also has days that commemorate things. Those are testimonial, bear testimony. Judicial mitzvot, do not kill, do not steal. Uh, if you borrow money, you've got to repay it. Those are, those are logical judicial mitzvot. What he says is that when you observe those mitzvot, the reality is the truth of those mitzvot is the same as the mitzvah, as the mitzvah of the red heifer that makes no sense even though I gave a little bit of an explanation before but it's like those mitzvot like kosher that don't make any sense why? because at its core these mitzvot are divine logic divine wisdom that transcends the logic of created beings so how can you understand it? furthermore so that's one aspect of it furthermore they are your will divine will which transcends even so number one, every mitzvot, even, again, even the mitzvah that logically makes sense. I get it, I understand the mitzvah. Even that mitzvah, essentially, is divine wisdom that you can't understand. And it's not any higher than any other? Right, it's not any, they're all the same. There's no hierarchy. If it's a mitzvah, it means it's, it's divine wisdom that you can't understand. Furthermore, it's divine will, it's your will. Will that transcends even divine reason. Will that's associated with God's pleasure. Will that's absolutely essential. Continue. Now we bring the discussion full circle to understand what was the essential conflict of the story of Hanukkah. What, in other words, what was the Greek ideology? What was the, what was the friction between the Jewish way of thinking and the Greek way of thinking? Even though, of course, these were Syrian Greeks and these weren't, or Syrians and these... Notwithstanding that, the point is that there was some sort of philosophical, ideological conflict. So what was it? Here we go. So when it says that the Greeks wanted to take them away from the statutes of your will... And that's in the prayers. Remember we, we pulled out the Siddur uh, maybe a month or two ago? We read it from the... This, we read in the Al-Hanisim about Hanukkah. What did they want to do? They wanted to take us away from the statutes of your will. Continue. It is referring also to their desire to take them away from the testimonial and judicial mitzvot. They didn't only have a problem with us keeping the irrational mitzvot. They also had a problem with us keeping the rational mitzvot if we were keeping it because God wants us to. For the Greeks sought, God forbid, to uproot from Israel the divine feeling within mitzvot, the idea that all mitzvot are divine wisdom, which transcends human logic, to take them away from the statutes of, and they sought, God forbid, to uproot from them the feeling that the mitzvot are the divine will. The Greeks had no problem saying, you know, that mitzvah has a reason for it, Torah is logical, and maybe it's higher, maybe you need a context, so eventually, level one, they had no problem with. Level, levels two and three, they had a problem. They said, you're telling me that a mitzvah is divine wisdom that transcends uh, human wisdom? That there's no, lo- there's no way that a person can understand it? We don't buy that. You're telling me that a mitzvah is divine will that transcends even divine wisdom that has no reason whatsoever? Not even, a, not even an infinite reason? We don't buy that. That was where there was the conflict. Where the Jews said, this is what God wants and that's why I'm doing it. Even when it came to the judicial mitzvot. Even when it came to the rational mitzvot. At the end of the day, I keep it because God wants me to. Right? Why, does, why do I not steal from someone? Because God said not to. I understand it also makes sense, but ultimately this is, what, this is what God wants me to do, or doesn't want me to do. When the Jews said that, the Greeks said, that doesn't make any sense. You have to do things because they're logical. Not because 
something super rational, super supernatural, divine, God's will, God's will. God. We don't buy that. And that was the essential core. Next week, we're going to connect this with the oil. Why is it? We're going to explain that that's why the Greeks came in to the temple, to the sanctuary, and defiled the oil. Because the oil represents this, in a sense, this uh, understanding, that some, or not understanding, acceptance, that there's something higher than logic. So we bring it back to the literal story of Hanukkah to understand why the oil was so key in this, in this struggle. Why they went after the oil and why the miracle happened with the oil and it burned eight days, etc. Why was the oil at the, at the heart of this? I mean, we have the, the, the core of the explanation, but we're going to kind of flesh it out. In chapter 5, and then chapter 6 talks about... Chapter 5 is very short, but it, it, it contains a lot of depth because we're going to connect it with the, with the properties of oil, literal physical properties of oil. In chapter 6, we're going to get to, well, how do, you, how do you win this war? And by the way, as I explained a few weeks ago, this is not an ancient battle. It's a very modern battle because the world around us says you have to live logically. Right? Your society says things have to be logical. Your neighbors say, so why do you put up the menorah? What are you doing? And you have to give a logical answer. If you said, because God told me to, to look at you a little funny. No, so uh, well, my point is, know that the same struggle between philosophies and cultures that existed then, they were trying to Hellenize us. The Hellenization, that the movement was that everyone should be philosophers and Greeks and, and enlightened in that manner. It's the same conflict that exists here. There's no one deviously going after us, trying to destroy us. Try, but it's kind of like, come on, lighten up, get enlightened. Do things that make sense. Don't stick to some archaic rituals just because your grandparents did it. All of that is the same line, the same, same language that the Greeks, Syrian Greeks use, etc., in this conflict of Hanukkah many years ago. So it's not an ancient story. It's a very relevant story. And we're going to see in chapter 6 how we combat that. How we, not combat that, how we struggle against that, what we need to do in order to ensure that we stick to our principles without being influenced by the logical way of living. Make sense? But shouldn't. Okay.